Welcome to Come Follow Me, Deep Dive. This is where we take a chapter-by-chapter approach to the scriptures that are assigned by the Come Follow Me curriculum of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. My name is Barry Hillam, and I hope that this podcast will be a benefit to you. In each episode, you will hear a short flyover summary for the scriptural chapter in question, followed by a verse-by-verse reading that is supplemented with commentary from parallel passages of scripture and from modern-day prophets. You might consider adjusting the playback speed in your favorite podcast player. With that, I'm glad you're with me. Let's get started. Alma, chapter 51. Well, we know from previous chapters, Alma chapter 49 and Alma chapter 50, that the Nephites are well equipped at this point to handle an attack from the Lamanites. This was certainly shown to us in Alma chapter 49, when the Lamanites came uh, against the surprisingly well-fortified city of Ammonihah, and they chose to retreat. But then they went ahead and attacked the heavily fortified city of Noah, and there they were defeated so terribly that over a thousand of their men were lost and all their chief captains, and they returned to Amalickiah. After this took place, we had great confidence in the Nephites' ability to repel a Nephite attack. And then we learned in Alma chapter 50 that their fortifications had only improved and that more cities were built and that the borders were uh, shored up. Uh, So we read of all of that in the previous chapter. In this chapter, we will find that another Lamanite attack takes place. And we know that because the Nephite fortifications are so strong, that it's unlikely that Amalickiah and his armies will be able to penetrate these great Nephite strongholds. We can imagine that the only way in which they can penetrate these strongholds is if there is internal Nephite dissension. Well, sadly, in this chapter, Alma chapter 51, we will discover a new form of Nephite dissension. And these dissenters are known as kingmen. And we'll read a great deal about these kingmen and how it is that they compromised the Nephites' ability to repel the attacking Lamanites. And even though things end poorly for Amalickiah personally by the end of this chapter, the Lamanites themselves are able to make inroads into the Nephite nation. And it's going to be very difficult from this point forward for the Nephites to reclaim all of those cities that do become strongholds for the Lamanites during this time. And all of this is coming out of dissension. And so we talked about this a little bit in the previous chapter, but that's certainly true here as well. So we can apply that to ourselves when we think about how it is that if the inner vessel is not cleansed, which is a phrase that Moroni will later use in his letter to Pehoran, that it's very difficult to tend to the outer vessel also. So we'll most certainly see an example of that here. Of this chapter, Ogden and Skinner have written, The epic struggle between the kingmen and the freemen is recounted. This contention came at a particularly critical time because Amalickiah of the Lamanites began to stir up old antagonisms and hatred against the Nephites. Eventually, and ironically, Amalickiah was murdered, as had been his predecessor. Thus we see that those who live by the sword die by the sword. What they're saying here, of course, is that Amalickiah himself had murdered the previous Lamanite king, 
and ultimately Amalekiah will die by being murdered as well. And that phrase, that those who live by the sword die by the sword, comes from Matthew chapter 26, verse 52, where the Savior said, Put up again thy sword into his place, for all they that take the sword shall perish with the sword. That was in the incident in Gethsemane when Peter went after Malchus with a sword and cut off his ear. Well, this chapter has 37 verses. The very first verse gives us some continuity. It says that peace is reestablished by the end of the 25th year of the reign of the judges. So we'll read about that. Then verse 2 takes us right into this new dissension that arises. And in verses 2 through 8, we learn about the king men. We learn, luckily, that the voice of the people favor the free men still, and Pehoran is retained as chief judge. Uh, But we can see in that then what the scope of this dissension was, that Pehoran's chief judgeship was actually in danger during this time. Uh, It was probably seen as an opportune time for these king men uh, because this was a point of transfer. And so Pehoran was a very new chief judge and was not nearly as experienced as his father, Nephiha. So in all of this, we'll find that the king men are silenced. They're not silenced because they've made an oath to stop their ways, it seems, but they're simply silenced because the voice of the people uh, ruled against them. So that issue is now set aside, and we find that this thing that we're dreading happens again in verses 9 through 12, that Amalekiah comes again against the Nephites. So he prepares, as we can see here, and this time with himself at the head of his armies for a new invasion of the Nephite nations. So we'll read that in verse 9 that he had again stirred up the hearts of the people of the Lamanites against the people of the Nephites. And so once again, we can see that this um, intrinsic motivation that each Lamanite needed to have in order to come against the Nephites was something that uh, Amalickiah had planted into their hearts. It says he stirred up their hearts. So he undoubtedly used the same means of propaganda that he had previously that were discussed at the beginning of Alma chapter 48. Now, in this environment of impending war, we find that this Nephite division rears its ugly head again. We find in verses 13 through 21 that these kingmen, even though they were silenced because they uh, did not prevail uh, within their system of government, they did not topple Pehoran, uh, um, and they were silenced, well, they do have a way here of doing something very insidious. And that's because when Amalickiah comes upon the Nephites, the kingmen actually refuse to take up defensive arms. So this is really repugnant behavior on the part of these people. So Moroni confronts them with force, so much so that he slays 4,000 of these dissenters. Uh, The remainder, those who did survive, did ultimately yield to the standard of liberty. Uh, But this is terrible loss that is occurring within the Nephite nation. Um, And so we can see that this kingmen movement is very large. And in fact, uh, this won't be the last time that we hear about the kingmen. So then, in verses 22 through 25, we'll discover that while Moroni is preoccupied and necessarily preoccupied with these kingmen, that Amalickiah is able to conquer the city of Moroni, that same city, that new city that we read of in the previous chapter that was kind of in the southeast corner of the land. So that would have been one of the first cities that he came upon 
that Amalekiah came upon as he invaded the Nephite nation. Well, very sadly, this new city of Moroni has been conquered by Amalekiah. So Amalekiah will hold on to this city and he'll wait before going against the city of Nephihah. And we'll read about that again in verses 22 through 25. Then we'll discover to our dismay in verses 26 and 27 that Nephihah does fall ultimately. Um, Amalekiah kind of bowed his time and then we learn kind of incidentally here that he took Nephihah but several others as well, including the city Lehi and the city Morianton. So it's these brand new cities that were built in the previous chapter that uh, Amalekiah takes over. Then we find in verse 28 and 29, as this campaign of occupation and destruction is taking place, this time with Amalekiah marching at the head of these armies, we'll find in verses 28 through 32 that Amalekiah meets his match. And it says that he is met with disappointment, is the way that it's phrased in this section, uh, when he meets Teancum and his men. And this is because Teancum is very capable, as are his men. It says in verse 31 that Teancum did exceed the Lamanites in their strength and in their skill of war, insomuch that they did gain advantage over the Lamanites. So we've read before about the Nephite advantage because of their armor. We've also read about the Nephite army army's advantage because of their fortifications. And of course, then the justness of their cause has always given them an advantage over the Lamanites. It's given the Nephites a certain level of unity. Um, except, of course, for the dissensions that have risen, arisen among them. But in this case, we're learning that man to man, uh, the people of Teancum, the men of Teancum, did exceed the Lamanites in their strength. So that's a new form of, of advantage that we haven't read of before, the individual skill of these warriors. So from this, we get the impression that Teancum is a very formidable foe for Amalekiah. Then we discover that this is so true, in fact, in the final verses of this chapter, extending from verses 33 through 37, that Teancum has the temerity and has the boldness to actually go into the tent of Amalekiah in his own camp uh, by night, and he stabs him in the heart with a javelin. He put a javelin to his heart, as will be told in verse 34. And then Teancum goes back uh, to his own camp, He apprises his men of what he's done, and so then they stand in readiness. And that's the point that brings us, that that takes us into Alma chapter 52, and we really can't wait to turn the page, actually, and see what will happen next. Verse 37, the final verse in this chapter, then will tell us that this brings us to the end of the 20 and 5th year of the reign of the judges. So returning now to verse 1 for a reading. And now it came to pass in the commencement of the twenty and fifth year of the reign of the judges over the people of Nephi. So from reading that and uh, just noticing what verse 37 said, we can see that this entire chapter takes place in one year, the twenty and fifth year of the reign of the judges. They, having established peace between the people of Lehi and the people of Morianton concerning their lands, and having commenced the twenty and fifth year in peace. So again, a continuity peace that reminds us of that skirmish that took place between Morianton and Lehi, um, and then ultimately that dissension that was put down by Teancum. We find that a new dissension arises here in verse 2. Nevertheless, they did not long maintain an entire peace in the land, for there began to be a contention among the people concerning the chief judge Pahoran. 
For behold, they were a part of the people who desired that a few particular points of the law should be altered. Makes it sound a little bit innocuous here by saying that a few particular points of the law should be, an alter, should be altered, but we'll find that it is not innocuous at all, but it is very insidious, this movement. Verse 3, But behold, Pehoran would not alter nor suffer the law to be altered. And again, this almost seems like a challenge to his rule. Uh, here we have someone who's new. And so now perhaps these kingmen have been um, planning on doing such a thing for some time, but didn't dare under the leadership of Nephi. But now with Pehoran, they do dare. But we find again in verse 3 that Pehoran would not alter nor suffer the law to be altered. Therefore, he did not hearken to those who had sent in their voices with their petitions concerning the altering of the law. That tells us that this idea of overthrowing Pehoran was attempted through democratic means uh, because it was those who had sent in their voices with their petitions to try and alter the law in this way. So it was they, they tried to do it through legitimate means first. Verse 4, and, and that's how it is with the democracy. I'll just add as an aside, and uh, Mosiah talked about this in Mosiah chapter 29, how the voice of the people can desire something that's not right and not good. Uh, We still protect, or this type of government protects their ability to speak out in such a way and to unite their voices in such a way, and Mosiah rues the day that a majority of people would uh, desire something that goes against the liberty of the land and the commandments of God. So we can see that in this case, it luckily is a minority that is acting, but these kingmen will be a terrible vexing problem for the Nephites moving forward. Verse 4, Therefore those who were desirous that the law should be altered were angry with him, and desired that he should no longer be chief judge over the land. Therefore there arose a warm dispute concerning the matter, but not into bloodshed. So it still seems to be happening within the constraints of the law. There's no bloodshed taking place here. Uh, A warm dispute is Mormon's uh, word choice. And it came to pass that those who were desirous that Pehoran should be dethroned from the judgment seat were called kingmen, for they were desirous that the law should be altered in a manner to overthrow the free government and to establish a king over the land. So this is especially insidious because they want to do it through somewhat innocuous means. Again, a few particular points of the law should be altered is what they desired. So it was packaged, this kingmen movement was packaged in uh, in a way that must have seemed somewhat inviting to the people and perhaps somewhat reasonable because a lot of people went along with this movement. Brant Gardner has written of the kingmen, this group seemed to be citizens who simply desired some changes in the law. Mormon reveals them as the same kind of people who have cropped up throughout the history of the Nephites in Zarahemla. They want a king, which involves much more than a change in the style of government. A monarchy entails an entire lifestyle associated with kings. The people who wanted a king were always the richest. They want a king because a king represented the way of life that supported the value of the wealth they had acquired. With that wealth comes a set of values and concepts that include costly apparel, elitism, and a system of social classes. Verse 6, And those who were desirous that Pehoran should remain chief judge over the land took upon them the name of freemen, and thus was the division among them. For the freemen had sworn or covenanted to maintain the rights and the privileges of their religion by a free government. 
Now, as to who the freemen were, Brant Gardner, in Second Witness, has written this. To this point in Nephite history, the people have either been religiously united or separated into two factions, churchmen and non-churchmen. Now there are freemen and kingmen. The factions are sufficiently large and cohesive that they cannot only be named, but be named in opposition to each other. Oppositions so severe that civil war is the next step. This is an absolute opposition of political, social, and religious worldviews. The dispute is so fundamental that mediation will not work. One side must win and the other lose. We'll just pause here for just a moment and consider the idea of religious freedom in the context of what's happening here with the king men and the free men. Dallin H. Oaks has written this in an address called Strengthening the Free Exercise of Religion. Religious teachings and religious organizations are vital to our free society and therefore deserving of its special legal protection. Our country's robust private sector of charitable works originated with and is still sponsored most significantly by religious organizations and religious impulses. This includes education, hospitals, care for the poor, and countless other charities of great value to our country. Many of the most significant moral advances in Western society— have been motivated by religious principles and persuaded to official adoption by pulpit preaching. Examples include the abolition of the slave trade in England and the Emancipation Proclamation in this country. The same is true of the civil rights movement of the last half century. These great advances were not motivated and moved by secular ethics or persons who believed in moral relativism. They were driven primarily by persons who had a clear religious vision of what was morally right. Our society is not held together primarily by law and its enforcement, but most importantly by those who voluntarily obey the unenforceable because of their internalized norms of righteous or correct behavior. Religious belief in right and wrong is a vital influence to produce such voluntary compliance by a large number of our citizens. President George Washington spoke of this reality in his farewell address. Of all the dispositions and habits which lead to political prosperity— Religion and morality are indispensable supports, he said. Reason and experience both forbid us to expect that national morality can prevail in exclusion of religious principle. That comes, by the way, from Washington's farewell address. Now, coming back to verse 7, as we learn what happened with these kingmen. And it came to pass that this matter of their contention was settled by the voice of the people. Again, it's a warm contention, but there's no bloodshed here. This is still happening within the constraints of the law, it seems. And so it was settled by the voice of the people. And it came to pass that the voice of the people came in favor of the freemen. And Pehoran retained the judgment seat, which caused much rejoicing among the brethren of Pehoran, and also many of the people of liberty, who also put the kingmen to silence that they durst not oppose, but were obliged to maintain the cause of freedom. So a cause of much rejoicing here because so much was at stake, but it would have been nice if this problem hadn't cropped up in the first place. Then the Nephites could continue with uh, building up their fortifications and being prepared for a Lamanite attack and not dealing with this terrible internal internal problem. Now we get this extra piece of insight that uh, uh, certainly aligns with what Brant Gardner taught about the kingmen earlier, about them uh, being rich and prosperous themselves. Verse 8 says, Now those who were in favor of kings were those of high birth, and they sought to be kings, and they were supported by those who sought power and authority over the people. So even though the Nephite nation is quite egalitarian, it seems, uh, beginning with uh, the the 
with Mosiah stepping down uh, as king and not transferring that right to another, but instead appointing a chief judge in Alma, uh, even though that that began a new kind of egalitarian society, we still read here in verse 8 that there were those who were considered to, to, to come from high birth. So there was some sense of an aristocracy still at this point in time. So Gerald Hansen has written, No fewer than four different internal rebellions occurred among the Nephites during the time when all their forces should have been marshaled to fight against the Lamanites. And here he um, um, cites four uh, different dissensions, just like Brant, or excuse me, just like Thomas Arvaletta had done earlier. Excuse me, that's in Alma chapter 50 and 51, then in 53, then in 61. So now we turn back to this confrontation with the Malachiah. But behold, this was a critical time for such contentions to be among the people of Nephi. For behold, Amalickiah had again stirred up the hearts of the people of the Lamanites against the people of the Nephites, and he was gathering together soldiers from all parts of his land and arming them and preparing them for war with all diligence, for he had sworn to drink the blood of Moroni. Word certainly would have spread in Lamanite society that the Nephites were very difficult to beat and that going against their fortified cities would have been a very dangerous enterprise. The common soldier in the Lamanite nation probably would have had this sense. We know earlier that when Amalickiah's successor, who was probably known as King Laman, sent out a proclamation of war to the people that they simply didn't obey it uh, because of what had happened in Alma chapters 43 and 44 when Zarahemla Zarahemna was their leader, and they were so soundly defeated by a Nephite army that uh, had special armor and that was ready to meet them and defeated them, even though they were smaller in number. So the Lamanites were afraid of the Nephites. The common Lamanite soldier was afraid of the Nephites. This undoubtedly is why Amalekai had to focus so carefully on propaganda. He really had to stir these Lamanites up to a state of anger that they were emboldened to go against the Nephites and that they had a sense of cause, even though it was a false sense of cause. And it was a cry of justice, and it probably, as I've mentioned earlier, would be linked to what we read in Alma, or excuse me, Mosiah chapter 10, that talks about this grievance narrative that the Lamanites passed on from one generation to another that said that they were wronged. They were wronged by Lehi because he passed the birthright to Nephi instead of to Laman, and that they were wronged by Nephi because of the way that he occupied the land of Nephi that they now occupy. And this, and they even said that they were wronged on the sea. Of course, the small plates of Nephi tell us a different story. But this grievance narrative made it possible for these Lamanites to continually stir one another up in hatred toward the Nephites. So Malachi would have had to have played upon this uh, because these Lamanites were um, very aware, we would guess, of the terrible defeat that their armies experienced when they went up against the fortified city of Noah. So it would have been a difficult task, I think, for Malachi to mobilize his armies once again. And it seems to not have taken place until there was a four-year season of peace. Uh, But here we see then in verse 9 that he stirred up the hearts of the Lamanites and that he was successful in gathering them. Verse 10, But behold, we shall see that his promise which he made was rash, and that is the promise that he would drink the blood of Moroni. Nevertheless, he did prepare himself and his armies to come to battle against the Nephites. Now his armies were not so great as they had hitherto been. 
and we can only guess that that would be true, because of the many thousands who had been slain by the hand of the Nephites. But notwithstanding their great loss, and of course we could add, it must have been, notwithstanding their great fear of the Nephites, Amalickiah had gathered together a wonderfully great army, it says, insomuch that he feared not to come down to the land of Zarahemla. We know from other wars or other battles that the Nephites were so uh, vastly outnumbered by the Lamanites that even though the Lamanite army is smaller, it probably is still vastly larger than the Nephite armies that it would oppose. So now Reynolds and Soljal have written this, Amalickiah had not forgotten his ambitious dreams of subjecting the entire people of Nephi to his ungodly notions and thereby make slaves of them. He had not relinquished any of his evil designs. Neither had Amalickiah forgotten his boast that he would drink the blood of Moroni, nor did he leave a thing undone that would bring about that end. The sacred record states that this was a critical time for the Nephites to be torn by political strife and that the contentions among them regarding the chief judge deprived them of a unified effort in combating the serious menace always posed by the Lamanites. Then in verse 12, we discover something different about this instance because Amalickiah himself is going to march at the head of his armies. Yea, even Amalickiah did himself come down at the head of the Lamanites. And it was in the twenty and fifth year of the reign of the judges, and it was at the same time that they had begun to settle the affairs of their contentions concerning the chief judge, Pehoran. Now here's where things become even worse with the kingmen. They were put, um, they were made silent through a democratic process, as we've just read, but now they're able to act on their evil designs in a whole new way. We read this in verse 13. Now that Amalickiah is coming upon the Nephites, the kingmen have a really deplorable way of responding to this Lamanite threat. And it came to pass that when the men who were called kingmen had heard that the Lamanites were coming down to battle against them, they were glad in their hearts. And they refused to take up arms, for they were so wroth with the chief judge and also with the people of liberty that they would not take up arms to defend their country. This is another one of those things I, I think we read with our mouths wide open, like we did in Alma chapter 47, where, where we could hardly believe what Amalickiah did and what he pulled off. Here we can hardly believe that these kingmen wouldn't value their liberty and their security in the Nephite nation enough to oppose the Lamanites with all their strength, even if they had different political ideas from their brethren within the Nephite nation. They were willing to sacrifice their own security uh, in an effort to be right. And I think that just shows us the danger of always wanting to be right and letting anything else, um, any other priority, fall by the wayside. That seems to be what's happening here. This is from the Book of Mormon Institute manual on this idea that these people would actually not take up arms to defend their country. As citizens, we are subject to the government, uh, to the governing laws of our country. Elder Russell M. Nelson offered the following counsel when faced with the duty of taking up arms to defend one's country. Quote, Men really are brothers because God really is our Father. Nevertheless, scriptures are studded with stories of contention and combat. They strongly condemn wars of aggression, but sustain obligations of citizens to defend their families and their freedoms. Members of this church will be called into military service of many nations. We believe that governments were instituted of God for the benefit of man. And here, President Nelson is quoting from Doctrine and Covenants, section 134, verse 1. And that he holds men accountable for their acts in relation to them, both in making laws and administering them for the good and safety of society. During the Second World War, 
When members of the church were forced to fight on opposing sides, the First Presidency affirmed that the state is responsible for the civil control of its citizens or subjects, for their political welfare, and for the carrying forward of political policies, domestic and foreign. But the church itself as such has no responsibility for these policies, other than urging its members fully to render loyalty to their country. So now we'll see Moroni's response to these kingmen. Verse 14, And it came to pass that when Moroni saw this, and also saw that the Lamanites were coming into the borders of the land, he was exceedingly wroth because of the stubbornness of those people whom he had labored with so much diligence to preserve. Yea, he was exceedingly wroth. His soul was filled with anger against them. We'll have another opportunity to talk about Moroni and and his anger. Later he will say, I am in my anger. Uh, So I think we can come back to that then. We haven't seen the word wrath being used by a man of God or being associated with a man of God until this point in the scriptures. I think I will just say that when it comes to scriptural anger and a righteous character in the scriptures that shows anger, we're quick to cite the instance of the Savior cleansing the temple, which he did two times. And to guess that he was anger, that, that he was angry. There will be some commentary that I'll read later when Moroni makes that comment in an epistle, I believe, to Amaron, when he says that I am in my anger. Um, but I think it's important to notice when we do read that commentary and when we think of the Savior cleansing the temple that there really is no righteous anger in the sense that it's an anger where one loses control and that love and charity are are marginalized. Um there, that's a that's an unrighteous anger, and that's different, and it's not comparable, um, I don't think, to the, the, the righteous anger that the Savior uh, displayed, if it's appropriate to call it that, or that Moroni is displaying here. But he certainly was wroth, and we are as readers too, I think, in a way, and we're anger, angry too, but in a righteous way, if, if it's possible for there to be such a thing. Uh, these kingmen, what they're doing is truly deplorable. Verse 15, And it came to pass that he sent a petition with the voice of the people unto the governor of the land, desiring that he should read it and give him Moroni power to compel those dissenters to defend their country or to put them to death. So Moroni is about to do this thing. He's about to put the kingmen down, this time through the shedding of blood. It's more than a warm contention now. And now the voice of the people do empower Moroni to do this thing, to compel those dissenters or to put them to death. Verse 16, For it was his first care to put an end to such contentions and dissensions among the people. For behold, this had been hitherto a cause of all their destruction. And it came to pass that it was granted according to the voice of the people. And it came to pass that Moroni commanded that his army should go against those kingmen and pull down their pride and their nobility and level them with the earth, or they should take up arms and support their cause of liberty. Of this, Ogden and Skinner have written, Moroni demanded fellow citizens' loyalty in fighting to defend their country or be executed. Dissenters were considered traitors, rebels or insurrectionists who would not fight in defense of their country or who promoted civil disobedience were speedily executed. However, this reality of war must be measured against Moroni's reluctance to take up the sword in the first place and his willingness to lay it down quickly when opportunity presented itself, which Moroni shows shows consistently throughout the record. 
McConkie and Millet have written, though some of Moroni's actions might be offensive to the more pacifistic of this modern age, he acted in harmony with what he felt was his and his others and others' duty to God, even to the point of compelling dissenters to take up arms in support of the government during war. At those times when he sensed that moral support for government or the cause of liberty was fading, Moroni single-handedly sought to foster enthusiasm and engender support for the government by reminding the people of their promises to God. Verse 18, And it came to pass that the armies did march forth against them, meaning the armies of Moroni did march against the kingmen, and they did pull down their pride and their nobility, insomuch that as they did lift their weapons of war to fight against the men of Moroni, they were hewn down and leveled to the earth. And it came to pass that there were four thousand of those dissenters who were hewn down by the sword, and those of their leaders who were not slain in battle were taken and cast into prison, for there was no time for their trials at this period. So make no mistake here, there is not asymmetry here. Uh, this is actually a battle, and so it's clear that the kingmen have taken up arms to defend themselves against Moroni and his armies. And the remainder of those dissenters, rather than be smitten down to the earth by the sword, yielded to the standard of liberty. So there's that term again. We can see that it is still the standard that is informing these Nephite armies. And were compelled to hoist the title of liberty upon their towers and in their cities and to take up arms in defense of their country. So this suggests that on the part of the kingmen, there would have been towers and in fact entire cities that were under the control of the kingmen. And so this was a really vexing and widespread problem within the Nephite nation. Verse 21, And thus Moroni put an end to those kingmen, that there were not any known by the appellation of kingmen. And thus he put an end to the stubbornness and the pride of those people who professed, professed the blood of nobility. But they were brought down to humble themselves like unto their brethren and to fight valiantly for their freedom from bondage. And once again we get that hint that these kingmen were of noble birth, and so they had a different sense for how things should go than the bourgeoisie that were led by Moroni. Now, Montes Nyman has written this, Moroni's petition was not to kill whoever chose not to fight. Notice that there was not time for a trial. Five years later, the men of Pacus, also kingmen, received their trial according to the law, and those who would fight against their country were put to death. This action was taken for the safety of their country. We'll read about that in Alma chapter 62. In a similar situation today, the same action may be justified. Notice also that the dissenters were given the choice to defend their country or be put to death. Moroni's actions put an end to the kingmen and to the stubbornness and pride of those who professed the blood of nobility. So now that we've come to kind of a resolution of this vexing problem and kingmen in battle have either been slain or they have uh, submitted to the title of liberty, our attention now turns to this attack from Amalekiah. And as we might imagine, Amalekiah is going to have more success this time because of this terrible internal problem within the Nephite nation. Verse 22, Behold, it came to pass that while Moroni was thus breaking down the wars and contentions among his own people and subjecting them to peace and civilization, and making regulations to prepare for war against the Lamanites. Behold, the Lamanites had come into the land of Moroni, which was in the borders by the seashore. Dean Garrett has written that Mormon showed by his account that wickedness brought dissent, and dissent brought the threat of destruction from outside forces. The only way that the Nephites could stay free was to stay righteous. 
so true for us today, I think we can say. Verse 23, And it came to pass that the Nephites were not sufficiently strong in the city of Moroni. Therefore Malachiah did drive them, slaying many. And it came to pass that Amalekiah took possession of the city, yea, possession of all their fortifications. And those who fled out of the city of Moroni came to the city of Nephihah. And also the people of the city of Lehi gathered themselves together and made preparations and were ready to receive the Lamanites to battle. So these cities sound familiar to us because they were just formed. The foundations of them were just built in the previous chapter. This was part of Moroni's campaign to shore up the border between the Nephite and Lamanite nations. There is a strip of wilderness between them, and it seems to have run from the East Sea to the West. And Moroni wanted control of everything that was north of that East-West strip. And so the city of Moroni was a point of fortification for that, and it seems that Nephiha was as well, and that Lehi was something similar to that to the north. Uh, but uh, Amalekiah has been able to claim the city of Moroni. So, uh, verse 25, But it came to pass that Amalekiah would not suffer the Lamanites to go against the city of Nephiha to battle, but kept them down by the seashore, leaving men in every city to maintain and defend it. So, every city suggests that there were other cities that had been um, conquered at this point besides Moroni. Uh, so, there, there would have been a lot of cities here. And we're seeing some strategic restraint on Amalekiah's part here, that he's going to wait for a bit. Uh, before he goes against Nephiha to battle. And we'll discover that his uh, restraint pays off because in verse 26 it says, And thus he went on, meaning Amalickiah went on, taking possession of many cities, the city of Nephiha and the city of Lehi and the city of Morianton. So our hearts kind of sink as we read that those cities have been taken. And the city of Omner and the city of Gid and the city of Mulek, all of which were on the east borders by the seashore. So much of what we're about to read in the coming chapters has to do with the reclaiming of these cities. And Helaman and his stripling warriors will have a role to play in that, as will Moroni's armies, of course, and Teancum and Lehi. Uh, we get this uh, from Daniel Ludlow with respect to the Lamanites eventually capturing Nephiha. He says, although the historian of this part of the record mentions in Alma chapter 51, verse 25, that the Lamanites decided not to go against the city of Nephiha to battle, in the next verse the historian records that the Lamanites went on taking possession of many cities, the city of Nephiha and the city of Lehi, etc. Although it is not clear whether or not the historian intended to include the city of Nephiha in this list, it is evident that the city is captured later by the Lamanites, uh, and that is crystal clear. In Alma chapter 59, actually, verses 7 through 9, and Daniel Ludlow points that out for us. Verse 27, And thus had the Lamanites obtained, by the cunning of Amalickiah, so many cities, by their numberless hosts, all of which were strongly fortified after the manner of the fortifications of Moroni, all of which afforded strongholds for the Lamanites. So from that, of course, we, we know this, this broader principle that whenever in a conflict one party deploys a weapon, if that weapon is confiscated by the other party, then that weapon be, becomes used against the originally deploying party. Well, these fortifications that have been built around the Nephite cities are now used as a Lamanite advantage because of the way in which they've been able to take over these cities. And of course, that is because of the dissension caused by the kingmen. So now we are at least pleased to read that Amalekiah will not be able to progress because of his confrontation with Teancum. 
And verse 28, And it came to pass that they marched to the borders of the land bountiful, driving the Nephites before them and slaying many. So it would seem that Bountiful is a large region that is uh, above this kind of seashore and border region that Malachi has already taken control of. And so now he's infiltrating the borders of the land Bountiful. But it came to pass that they were met by Teancum, who had slain Morianton and headed his people in his flight. And we remember that, of course, from the previous chapter. So Mormon is giving us that piece of continuity. And it came to pass that Teancum headed Amalickiah also, as he was marching forth with his numerous army that he might take possession of the land Bountiful and also the land northward. So that's Amalickiah's intent. As we know, he wants to take control of all of the Nephite nation. It wasn't enough for him to become the king of the Lamanites. And so uh, we reread here that that's what was going on as he was infiltrating Bountiful and also wanted to get to everything northward. But behold, he met with a disappointment by being repulsed by Teancum and his men. For they were great warriors. For every man of Teancum did exceed the Lamanites in their strength and in their skill of war, insomuch that they did gain advantage over the Lamanites. And it came to pass that they did harass them, insomuch that they did slay them even until it was dark. And it came to pass that Teancum and his men did pitch their tents in the borders of the land bountiful, and Amalickiah did pitch his tents in the borders on the beach by the seashore. And after this manner were they driven." So they're, they're digging their heels in, and they're into a conflict here. And now in verse 33, this thing happens. And it came to pass that when the night had come, Teancum and his servants stole forth and went out by night, and went into the camp of Malachiah, and behold, sleep had overpowered them because of their much fatigue, which was caused by the labors and the heat of the day. Well, that's an interesting piece of insight there. And there. And of course, it also... Uh, reveals Teancum's uh, stamina and uh, his boldness. Verse 34, And it came to pass that Teancum stole privily into the tent of the king and put a javelin to his heart, and he did cause the death of the king immediately that he did not awake his servants. Well, um, Brent Merrill has written, uh, One interesting feature of this attack is that it was consistent with ancient custom. Hugh Nibley has noted that in ancient warfare, since set combat was usually forbidden after sundown, the wee small hours were reserved for the standard attack on the rival's tent, a vital maneuver since once the tent had fallen, the enemy's morale and often his resistance was broken. The ultimate in heroic gestures for the Arab was a night raid on the tent of a chief. So that certainly is what's happening here with Teancum. Eugene England has written in a... um, 1977 Enzyme article called Moroni and His Captains. In many ways, Teancum was a heroic extension of Moroni's own quickness, decisiveness, and boldness. When Amalekai again stirred up his Lamanites to attack, in the midst of another internal dissension among the Nephites, it was Teancum's army that intercepted and repulsed him. We do not know whether Teancum soberly calculated the cost in lives of another battle or was inflamed with fury against the renegade Nephite who had caused so much bloodshed. While the army slept in exhaustion, he crept through the Lamanite camp to Amalekiah's tent, killed him silently, and then withdrew. When the Lamanites awoke on the first day of the new year to find their king dead and the Nephites poised for battle again, they fled in terror. And we'll read of that, of course, in the next chapter. Now verse 35, And he, Teancum, returned again privily to his own camp. And behold, his men were asleep, and he awoke them and told them all the things that he had done. 
and he caused that his army should stand in readiness, lest the Lamanites had awakened and should come upon them. I can only imagine being one of Tinkum's troops and being awakened to find that my leader had done this thing, uh, feeling a sense of pride in his, his abilities, and also uh, awakened to a sense of, of uh, need to be ready for battle. Verse 37, And thus ended the twenty and fifth year of the reign of the judges over the people of Nephi, and thus ended the days of Amalickiah. This is an opportune moment, there have been others too, of course, to talk about this system of reckoning that we keep hearing of here where we come to the end of a year of the reign of the judges. And that, that, that always seems to be the time marker that we come upon. Um, Daniel Ludlow once wrote about this in the Encyclopedia of Mormonism, saying, The exact nature of the Nephite year is not described. The Nephite year began with the first day of the first month. Uh, we read about that in Alma chapter 51. And it probably had 12 months because the 11th month was at the latter end of the year. And we did read of the 11th month in Alma chapter 48. But the lengths of the months and of the year itself are not mentioned. Well, we would certainly prefer at this point, I think, to go immediately into Alma chapter 52, and we most certainly will do that. And we we want to know what happens next because we're so distressed to see that the Lamanites have, have made such uh, inroads into the Nephite nation. And we're also so interested to see how the Lamanites will respond when they awake and discover that their leader has been slain in such a manner. So that is soon to come, and this brings us to the end of Alma, chapter 51. Thank you for listening to Come Follow Me, Deep Dive. I want to acknowledge the resources that have helped me prepare this and previous episodes of this podcast. Grant Hardy's Reader's Edition of the Book of Mormon has helped me with the sectional divisions in these chapters. Kelly Ogden and Andrew Skinner's verse-by-verse commentary on the Book of Mormon has provided me with rich commentary. I also want to acknowledge a new resource that I've used for the last few chapters, which is the Book of Mormon Study Guide, the revised edition from Thomas R. Valletta. Parallel passages of scripture and general conference addresses that come to mind also play a prominent role in this podcast as do my own thoughts and writings. For them and any errors that you find in them, I, of course, am solely responsible. I hope that this podcast has had the effect of drawing you to the scriptural text that is so rich with detail and generous with truths that can help us navigate through our own lives and, most importantly, draw closer to God in our study of His Word. So thank you for listening.